0: All right, let's get going. Um, before, we, before we dive in tonight, before we finish Colossians tonight, before we do anything else, um, I just wanna make sure that I get the opportunity uh, again this evening uh, just, just, just to communicate my love for you, uh, my care for you, uh, my prayer that tonight... Uh, Though some very difficult things will be uh, uh, said and communicated, that you would receive these in love, um, that you would know that that I I share them, um, uh, directed at all of us, not from me to you, not from a holy man to an unholy people, but to a bunch of people who have been saved by God's grace together in Christ. Amen? All right? So please hear my heart on all of that. Name that movie right here. Name the movie. I'm interested, okay? Okay. You picture the scene, right, where he's like, Wilson, you know, like he's fading away from. I'm still scarred by the scene where he cuts his own tooth out with the blade of the, of the uh, ice skating thing. You guys remember that? He's got, he gets like his wisdom tooth out with a, a blunt blade and then he's like passed out forever. Listen, could you imagine being deserted on, a, on an island all by yourself for 1,500 days? That's, that's how long Tom Hanks was in Castaway, 1,500 days. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine what would be going on in your psyche? Could you imagine the things you'd be thinking, uh, the, the people that you would be making out of volleyballs? Like, Can you imagine what you would resort to? I want to contend to you tonight that, that I think you can. I think you can imagine what that looks like. I think you can imagine what that feels like. Because just about every single one of us in this room, I'm going to go as far as to say 99%. I really would say 100, but I'm giving myself an out, okay? 99% of us have communicated one of the greatest exaggerations in the human language. That exaggeration is this, no one. You're like, well, what do you mean? Like, how is that an exaggeration? Again, most of us, 99%, have said statements like this. Feeling like we're on an island. No one cares. No one's my friend. No one understands. No one would miss me. No one loves me. No one knows what I'm going through. No one pursues me. No one believes I'm worth anything. And you fill in the rest of the blanks. It's insane. I, Countless meetings. I've sat with people in a meeting, the two of us. And I've heard these statements... As we're sitting in the meeting, across from each other, no one cares, no one's pursuing me, no one's interested, and I'm like, do I not count? Like, I'm here. Like, I'm pursuing you. I set up this time. I... You said, you said no one loves you. I love you. You, you said no one cares. I, like, obviously I care. I, I'm sitting right across the table from you. Many of you have sat in meetings. You've been with friends. You've uh, In conversations with people who have gathered to care for you. And you've said the words, no one. I want to continue tonight. It's one of the greatest um, exaggerations in Christian language. And it's one of the most dangerous when we've convinced ourselves that we're alone, when we're feeling lonely, are some of the hinge points of tremendous sin in our life. Think about it. I'm going to confess some of my own tonight. But before I do that, just imagine your own. You've convinced yourselves of these statements. You believe these things. You've said it so many times that it's now completely in your dome. That's right, nobody. There is no one on this earth That gives a darn about my life. And the moment you begin to believe that, isolate yourself, put yourself on an island, it's some of the most devastating things that have done. I mean, this is the prompting of suicide. I've shared with you guys before, I had to preach a 13 year old suicide. A 13 year old who had hung himself believing these things. Uh, Some of you have suicide in your family. Some of you have have had suicidal thoughts, and they've been birthed uh, from things like this. Uh, Others of you have, in the name of these things, have uh, self-harmed. I'll never forget, uh, a couple months ago, I uh, invited some folks to come up in response to the gospel afterwards, and one of the girls had said um, that that she was celebrating a month clean from self-harm, that she had gone for months and months and months of consistent cutting. And I know many of you think that that was maybe in the, uh, uh, you know, a 2000s thing. It's still happening because people believe this. And maybe your situation in your story isn't as um, tragic, or you're not. Well, I haven't contemplated suicide, but maybe it's a completely attempted to rob your joy. Maybe it's affected your relationships. Whatever it may be tonight, I want to ask God to purge us of this tonight. Are you ready for this? I want to believe that tonight God can kill the exaggeration of no one. And interestingly enough, as the text is so beautiful, he's going to do it through the end of Colossians. You're like, Mark, how in the world does the end of Colossians connect with this principle? Can I show you? Open your Bibles to Colossians chapter four. The end of a journey. We're gonna spend our summer in next book, uh, the book of Philippians. That's where we'll be all all summer long. Um, Excited about that. Anxious for that. Um, We're gonna move a little bit of of a quicker pace. It'll only take us like 11 weeks to get through four chapters. Uh, versus Colossians took us uh, nearly uh, 17 years for the same amount of time. Um, so let's read this. Colossians 4, verse 7 to 18. Let's read it holistically and let's begin to hypothesize about why this theory of no one is battled or embattled from Colossians chapter 4. Here we go. Etychicus, verse 7, will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and a faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. Verse 8. I have sent him to you for this very purpose that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, uh, 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 excuse me, Onesimus, I want to pronounce that right, and with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. They will tell uh, you of everything that has taken place here. Uh, verse 10. Ararchicus, my fellow prisoner, greets you and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. Concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. Eleven, and Jesus, who is uh, called justice, not to be confused, you're like, did he come back already? Did we miss it? No, different Jesus, who is also called justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is uh, one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, verse 12, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in the will of God. For I bear him witness, verse 13, that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Heropolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you. Come on now, little Luke, shout out, as does Demas. Give my greetings, verse 15, to the brothers at Laodicea, a shout out, as it were, and to Nympha and the church in her house. And finally, verse 16, 17, and 18. And when this letter has been read among you, pause and get excited with me. The ancient church would receive these letters from the Apostle Paul and the other writers. And you know what they would do? They would gather like this. And you know what they would do? They would read the word. They would share the letters. Passage by passage, line by line, just like we do. The pastors aren't creating topics that Paul has given them or themed to them. They literally are just taking the word, just like we have done with Colossians, and proclaiming them among the believers and those who would happen by. Does that make sense? It's beautiful. Okay, And when the letter has been read among you, have it also, look, don't just just take it for yourself, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from uh, Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. In the same way, he began this letter in verse 3. Grace be with you. And you're like, Mark, what in the world does no one have to do with all this? Can I show you? Next slide. Check this out. Ten names. Ten. Count them. Ten names, most of which I can barely pronounce. But ten names nonetheless. You're like, again, Mark, what what does this have to do with no one? No one. I picture Paul as a lone ranger. I picture Paul as a stallion that doesn't need relationships. I mean, the dude's hardcore. He's in prison, multiple prisons. Been, he was left for dead in Acts. Remember that? They thought he was dead. They left him. He wasn't. He wasn't gone. Like, he was still there. He's been snake-bitten. He's been on a shipwreck. The dude has swung across the sea to save his life. I mean, this guy is the epitome of hardcore. He doesn't need relationships. He is the Lone Ranger, and yet the word begs to differ. The word says different. Like, there's something in my, maybe it's just my man mind, um, which if you're a man here, oftentimes, like, it seems smaller uh, than than what it appears at times, but in my man mind, I kind of, listen, I kind of want Paul to be a Lone Ranger. In my sin, he seems like a better leader if he doesn't need anyone. In my heir, he seems like a greater apostle if he doesn't have to share in the ministry. Think of what we have done in our culture with pastors. Haven't we done the same thing? Haven't we escalated mere men to like Justin Bieber in the Christian form status? Haven't we done that? Haven't we, listened, celebrated servants of God to be more than servants of God and become gods themselves? Haven't we done that? In the age where anyone can get online or any app and listen to a sermon from anybody, we have taken these guys who are Uh, seemingly way gifted, and we've elevated them above the body of Christ. And I'm telling you, as for one, I at times have done the same, and I'm tired of it. Instead, what I see, the apostle Paul, the stallion Paul, the hardcore Paul, the shipwrecked Paul, the snake-bitten Paul, the almost-left-for-dead Paul mentions ten people in the end of this letter. Why? Because clearly, relationships matter to the brother. Clearly, he's not a lone ranger. Clearly, this brother has been deeply impacted by several people in his life, many of which, by the way, I'll share in a second, were imprisoned either with him or after him, will die before him or after he does. And we're like, yeah, but, but Mark, but no one gets it, but no one understands. Yeah, I think Paul would stand here before you and say, from my prison cell of which I wrote this letter to the church in Colossae, there wasn't one moment that I felt no one. So, just out of curiosity and for fun, let's go through these names and let me like let me share where these guys come from and uh, one female as well in, his, in this. All right, so, so look in your scriptures again. Let's begin in verse seven. Okay, uh, verse seven. Teckicus will tell you about my activities. He is a beloved brother. I love that language and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. Well, this guy is the deliverer of three different letters of Paul's. Okay, we see uh, him; his name come up several times in the New Testament. He delivers Colossians, he delivers uh, Ephesians, and he also delivers a Philemon Young, which is how many of you say Philemon? Okay? So he, he delivers all three of those letters. So when Paul says in verse 7, he is a beloved brother and he's going to tell you about my activities, how can he tell you about Paul's activities? It's because he has seen Paul, he's grabbed the letters, and then he's gone and delivered them. He's a huge player in the New Testament. Verse, uh, verse eight. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage your hearts. It's interesting, right? Because Paul never went to Colossae. He never, never was there. Again, I reiterate to you the same thing I've said over and over through this letter. Isn't it incredible, the heart of Paul for people that he's never met, but he desires and longs for them to not just hear the gospel and not just respond to the gospel, but clearly because of the letter, live in the gospel. Never seen them. Like, can't put faces with names. And yet he says, hey, this brother, he's going to tell you about our activities. And with him, verse 9 Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is, look at this, one of you. Well, this brother was a, for lack of a better term, was a runaway slave. He was apparently from Colossae, as Paul points out here. He runs away and then becomes literally the content of the letter of Philemon. He becomes the content of it. Okay, So if you read that long, lengthy letter at some point, you'll see his name pop up. Verse 9 again. They will tell you of everything that has taken place there. Some of you will get that later about the length of that book. Here we go. Verse 10. Okay. Aristicus, Look at this. My fellow what? My fellow prisoner. Greets you. I have to imagine that there's something so bonding about brothers who are on a common cause for the person of Christ, and then end with the same fate. And we may say, well, that's, that's kind of depressing. Think of how encouraging it would have been as Paul looks to his left and his right, and he sees faithful brothers with him in chains. We saw this guy, he's from Thessalonica. He's mentioned five times in the New Testament. He later goes with Paul to Rome. He's a huge player in the New Testament. Now look at what happens here. Really interesting note in the middle of verse 10. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. Well, many of you guys have heard of Barnabas, and for some of you that were here many years ago, through our study of, of Acts, maybe you remember Mark. Check this out. Crazy story. In Acts chapter 13, Paul's first missionary journey. Guess who Paul goes out on the, on the missionary trip with? Barnabas and his cousin John Mark. As we talked through Acts, we said, Barnabas and cousin John Mark are kind of close because they're cousins. Well, what happens is, listen, what happens is for whatever reason, John Mark bails, okay? In that missionary trip, he gets tired, he gets weary, he gets scared. Whatever happens, he bails. Paul don't like that, no, like he doesn't like it. And so on the second missionary trip, Barnabas is like, hey, like let's roll with John Mark. Paul's like, I don't think so. Like remember the first trip? He bailed. He cost us time and resources and most importantly the gospel. He's not rolling. But what happens? Look at how he talks about Mark. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, what does the word say? Come on. Welcome him. Apparently, reconciliation has happened. Isn't that incredible? Apparently, maybe the wayward even, we could say, John Mark, the guy who who maybe got a little bit scared, maybe went back with his tail between his legs. Apparently, relationally, something good has happened. And I love that picture of Paul too. He's not too prideful, not too arrogant to reconcile with those. And again, when we picture an epic leader, we picture a guy who's like, oh, you're out, forget you, I'll never care about you again. Not the case. Okay, John Mark, then we have uh, the person of Barnabas there. I don't talk about him uh, here because he's just mentioned by name, not specifically. Well, let's go on to Jesus, verse 11. And Jesus, who is called justice. I wish, that, I wish there was a better buildup here. This is his only mention in the, in the New Testament. I wish there was some epic story, and he carried on the name. We don't know that. The thing we do know, because the word tells us Captain Obvious of Captain Obvious School, is he was a Jew. Look at this, verse 11. There are only the men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, for they have been a comfort to me. So what I can say about Jesus in both cases, they were Jews. Verse 12, here we go. (laughs) Thank you. I studied long and hard at non-seminary for that. Here we go, verse 12. Epaphras, who is one of you... A servant of Christ Jesus, and what's the language there? Greets you. Well, we described in the early parts of our journey through Colossians that Epaphras was the guy who heard the gospel when Paul was in Ephesus, and he hears the gospel in Ephesus, and he goes to Colossae, and he preaches. So my contention to you is that he was the church planter, or at least the lead evangelist, because Paul never went. And now apparently, Epaphras is either back with Paul, has had some communion with Paul, maybe he's left to greet Paul, we're not sure, but he says, look, it, you know, he's one of you, and, and he greets you, he's a servant of God, always struggling, the verse says, on your behalf, in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God, which I just want to pause and take a little break and encourage you with this. Why is it that most believers... As they watch the salvation of others, get disinterested in discipleship. I feel like this is really the way I was trained growing up. Get them saved. Get them saved. Give them a big high five, a big, you know, whap on the back. Tell them blessings and good luck and then leave them to their own devices. That apparently isn't the heart of the early apostles. And I would even say in particular here, certainly not the heart of Epaphras. Let me read this again. He's always struggling on your behalf, middle of verse 12, in his what? In his prayers that you may stand what? Mature and fully assured in all the will of God. He's interested in the discipleship, the growth, let's say it this way, in the sanctification of the believers that he preached the gospel to. That's why we embrace so much here, not just the calling to discipleship, not just the understanding of discipleship, we embrace shepherding so dearly here in this church. We don't, I don't. Want to be a communicator of the gospel and then say, hey, good luck everyone. No, we want to shepherd hearts here. Journey with people through their stories. Toil with people in prayer. Because sanctification and growth in Christ is not just a beautiful thing, but it is our reality in God's plan through the Holy Spirit. Beautiful stuff. Verse 13. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you. And for those in Laodicea and in Heropolis, what does that mean? Epaphras didn't just go to Colossae and throw it down. He also went to some of the neighboring cities. Isn't that cool? He hears the gospel, and maybe he spent some time with Paul, and then he just goes and fires the laser all over the place for the glory of God. Like, he gets fired up. We don't even see that he was necessarily discipled for a long period of time. He gets the word put in him by the Holy Spirit, and he goes for it. Incredible. Verse 14, Luke The beloved physician greets you. Isn't it interesting to note that Paul and Luke were, how to say it, uh, they were homies, they were friends, they were, I don't know what to call, they were good friends, okay? Uh, Luke wrote a third of the length of the New Testament. He wrote the Gospel of Luke, well done, right? (laughs) And he also wrote uh, Acts, okay? He was a physician and he was a writer, clearly, and apparently, him and uh, Paul had good relationship. Luke, the physician, meets you. And then, interesting, as does Demas. I want to point out something here. In 1 Timothy, it's noted that Demas has become a lover of the world. One of the most frustrating things about discipleship and pouring into others is when you pour in and you pour in and you pour in and invest and it appears like the fruit is genuine and then they turn their back on the gospel. At this point in time when Paul writes this letter, Demas was a fellow brother in Christ, it seemed. But 1 Timothy uh, in chapter 4 notes that Demas became a lover of the world, that he negated Christ and went after his own devices. I want to encourage you because I've experienced this firsthand. I've discipled In particular, uh, one gentleman many, many years ago, who I poured in, invested, spent time with, talked about God's word, held his hand, wept with him over sin, like just was in it together. And he turned his back on the gospel, and it just reminded me yet again, I don't save and I don't sanctify. So can we collectively right now just just take this, if one of Paul's companions walked away from the Lord, I think that should free us to embrace the doctrine that God saves and that God sanctifies. That's it. We get a beautiful opportunity to be carriers of the gospel of Christ, to be ministers of reconciliation, 1 Corinthians calls us. We get that opportunity. And if people turn their back and run away, listen, we pray and we plead that they will turn back around, repent and come to the Lord. But my friends, It is not our responsibility to see their salvation through. So be free from that. Because I know right now some of you are burdened by disciples who have run or ran, or kids who have run or ran. Ask God to do a mighty work in them. That's what happened to Demas. Verse 15: Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house, only mentioned here. Isn't that cool? I love this. We we pointed this out earlier. Isn't it incredible to know the early church met in homes? Okay, we're welcoming back uh, tonight some good friends of ours, uh, missionaries in East Asia. Okay, Josh and Ashley Johns, you're going to get a chance to say hi to them later. It's incredible. In churches in that area of the world, guess where they have to meet? In homes. Why? It's illegal not to. If people find out about those churches, I mean, they shut them down. People can die in the early uh, beings. That's why we embrace so much what happens on Sundays here in Lot families. The church in home celebrating, ceasing, and, and enjoying the person of Christ. Finally, verse 16. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and see uh, that you also read the letter in Laodicea. And to uh, Archippus, see that, you're, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received from the Lord. This is uh, only, only one of two mentions in the scripture. And like I said earlier, verse 18, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand Remember my chains, both the chains in his slavery to Christ, his chains physically in prison, and he says, as he began, "Grace be with you." And so you're like, okay, Mark, um, that seems like a really interesting way to end the letter. Like you would think, like he would like like hit his punch. Like you would you would think like when he when he said. Uh, that he's the image of the invisible God and the firstborn over all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven, right? You would think that what he said in, in Colossians 1, uh, verse 15, that he would like end with that, bring it home. And instead, what does he do? Name after name after name. Next slide. It, it's this image of, of Paul in all of these relationships. So, in light of this, I want to make two statements. As I make this, these two statements, I'm asking for vulnerability from you as I will be vulnerable. Let's make statement number one and see what happens. Paul has relationships, Paul needs relationships, and I'm going to go as far as to say Paul cherishes relationships. In my arrogance in 2010, When Matthias planted two churches in six months. When we sent out um, nearly 50% of our people. And almost 55 to 60% of our resources. There was a three month time period that was insanely dark for me. The issue isn't that the period was dark. The The issue that I had about my arrogance in that time is that I acted like it wasn't. I knew I had to lead well. I knew I had to um, protect the body. I knew I had um, outwardly to... to um, To point us to Christ. I knew all these things. But in my heart, I convinced myself that everyone had abandoned me. I convinced myself that I was alone. I convinced myself that these guys that we had raised for the glory of Christ to plant churches. That now they were gone. That our relationships were done. I began to convince myself that yeah, like maybe relationships don't matter. I can fight through this. I can be the leader that God wants me to be with no one. And even though there were brothers around me asking me the hard questions, and even though there were uh, um, uh, a wife who deeply cared about me, for three months I fought through and believed the lie. In that same dark period of time, uh, I've shared before that I, I put my family in harm's way financially. Uh, we uh, went through a season where a lot of medical issues were coming up, and I started putting uh, church expenses and all of that medical debt on credit cards in that same period of time. Uh, thankfully, I, I remember, like it was, it was like all of a sudden, sitting in my office, reading God's word, starting to believe again when I was reading, where the words just weren't red letters or black letters on a page where they were the truth that I needed to hear again. It was unbelievable what happened when I repented, when I sought out brothers who deeply cared, when I brought them into our story, when I celebrated what I had in Christ. And listen, from that point on, it has been a beautiful, a beautiful journey of cherishing this unbelievable body that God has graced us with. Deep-rooted relationships community that though the church at that point was about a hundred and now much larger it seems like how can family exist here i love when my friends my brothers other pastors come here and they say Man, there's one thing that we see about this body is it's like even though it's larger it's a family like you can tell people care and i believe it's not just lip service when i say i love you it's not just a nicety so that you go home and you say mark really loves us listen I'm wondering if some of the rest of you would be so vulnerable as to, as to admit that maybe some of the most sinful things that you've done have been in the name of not believing that, that community matters or believing that you can exist apart from relationship. There's some of you in here that are cherishing the arrogance of being the Lone Ranger. I want to remind you what uh, in Genesis the first thing was that wasn't right and it wasn't good for man to be alone. Isn't it awesome to see a leader, as epically gifted as Paul, who clearly needs community? I want to invite you into that. Okay, so many of you have distanced yourself in fear. Of, listen, in fear of being found out. Can I share with you my experience? I just shared with you um, financial sin. I just shared with you arrogance and thinking that I could do it alone. And did one person in this room cuss me out or throw a stone? No. Why? Because though we, though we desire holiness and pursue the person of Christ, what we also recognize here is every single one of us are saved by grace through faith. That's it. It's grace that we're, that's needed. Okay. And so I want to invite, uh, invite you into that. Some of you are fearful of being known. You're like, if they found that out, if I sat in a lot family and they heard about this sin, can I encourage you? It hasn't happened here. Person after person who has confessed some of the most heinous things that you could ever imagine in this body have been nurtured, loved, cared for, shepherded, journeyed with, and that will continue to happen by God's grace. Relationships are a beautiful thing, right? And clearly, this leader Paul embraces it, cherishes it, sees it. So I'm wondering uh, tonight if you maybe maybe it's been like dark places of your heart. You just haven't been able to be like, yeah, I was lonely. And that's why pornography entered in, or that's why the affair, or that's why the alcohol, or that's why the food, whatever it is, okay? Now, the second thing, check this out. The second statement I'll make is this. Doing mission by yourself so that your gifts can be displayed in an effort to exalt your name is a murderous attempt on the body of Christ, Lest this not be our story, right, church? That we would exalt man or woman. That any of us would desire to serve by ourselves so that people could see that we're strong. So that in that three-month time period, people could, you know, scratch my back and say, Oh, Mark, you're leading us so well in a difficult time. Mark, you're doing a phenomenal job. Mark, keep up. No. It's in our weakness he's made strong. Pride comes before the fall. He's come to exalt the humble. My friends, what if we were purged of the desire of our gifts to be seen so that our name would be made great, and what if instead we cherish the body of Christ that we get to serve with? The reason why I bring this up now is Paul could have very easily given himself a whole bunch of credit. Oh, yeah, and uh, why don't you, yeah, Demas says what's up, too. Demas also said that I'm pretty much the best apostle in, uh, in, in you know, lower Asia. And, you know, uh, Arch, Archipester, that name I can't pronounce, yeah, he, says, he sends his greetings, too. And he also wants to make sure you guys know that my hands are bleeding by being in these chains because I'm so hardcore of a follower of Christ that I'm in prison for Jesus. He could have done all of that. Instead, what does he say? This person is a fellow brother. This person is a fellow brother. This person is an encourager. Please greet this person. He passes. He extends. He welcomes in. So some of you right now in areas of service, in areas of discipleship, in areas of walking with Christ, listen, not in the, the place that you would vocalize because you don't want any, but in the, in the depth of your heart, I'm just asking, are you doing those things so that people would see them and so that people would think that you don't need anyone? That people would think that you're strong enough. That people would think that though you're going through marital strife, people would think, oh man, oh man, Man they're, they're, man, they're such a rock. You know what I desire? I think about this all the time with my children. I want my kids, though I fail often at this, I want them to see that daddy is incapable of surviving on his own. He is not even close to being Superman and it is clear that he is fully reliant on something else and I pray ultimately they understand that that's Christ. Isn't that incredible about what Paul does here at the end of this letter? And you may say, well, but he says, remember my chains. He's asking for prayer. He's asking for, listen, remember that this is my reality. That's not an arrogance issue. It's a truth issue. All right. Colossians has been incredible. It's taught us many things. But I want to take us back to one of the most critical pieces in this whole letter. Okay, next slide. It comes from a story in Mark chapter two. Many of you will remember this moment. The story of the paralytic. Let's look at this again in Mark chapter two, verse one. And when he returned to Capernaum, this is Jesus, after some days it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. So if there's no room at the door, that means there's not even space to let the the door swing open or whatever kind of door that would have been uh, in this uh, adobe of, of, is that the right Jewish, I don't know. Like there wasn't any room. It was full. People were there. Okay? That's the point. Verse 3, check this out. And they came. Bringing to him a paralytic, carried by, the scripture says, four men. Now, the first time we taught the story in Colossians, the connotation was that Jesus tells the man, your sins are forgiven. The people in the house go against Jesus because they're like, hey, why are you saying your sins are forgiven? This dude needs to be healed. And Jesus says, is it better to say your sins are forgiven or be healed? And so then he says, you're healed, okay? And we watch this man pick up his mat and walk. And the encouragement was, as we've seen all through Colossians, our sins have been crucified on the cross of Christ. Colossians 1, we were once alienated. Now we uh, have peace through the blood of the cross. And on and on, we're to pick up our mat and now walk in light of our healing. We're now seen through a different lens. That's how we taught it. That's really the, been the premise of Colossians. But I want to look at a different piece of the story now. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. Now, this isn't shingles. Okay, so for those of you who are thinking, man, these dudes are hardcore. They had their shingle, you know, shovels up there. There were probably three or four layers of shingles up there, some, some tar. It was different. It was, a different. it was a different kind of roof. But still, you would agree with me, right? They persevered. Okay, they don't get to the door. They're like, oh, man, I'm sorry. You're going to have to live the rest of your life as a paralytic. We can't get in here, you know. It was a good effort. It was a good try. No, there has to be another way, they say. So what happens? They remove the roof above him, and when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. Isn't this beautiful? Isn't this an unbelievable picture of community? Isn't this an unbelievable picture of relationship? Uh, my guess is, is that there was some commonality between these five. My guess is there was some kind of bond between these five, that there had certainly been relationship between these five. And what happens is, when Jesus saw... I want to I show you something I've never seen in the story before. When Jesus saw what? Come on. What's the word? Their faith. Isn't it interesting? Not his, not the paralytic, though he comments on his faith specifically later in the story. He comments on their faith. These guys who apparently have come to Jesus and who apparently have lowered this man in the roof because they believe Jesus can do something about the problem. Listen, can I I tell you something about the beauty of community? We get the unbelievable privilege in Christ to not just be people who share in faith together or who have common language or who wear the same bracelets or who rock the same radio stations. We get to be people who collectively believe that Jesus has done something, that Jesus can do something, and that Jesus will do something. That's what unifies us. We get the amazing privilege of looking at one another. No, that's not going to cut it. You can't do it. Listen, as great as a spouse as you are, we need to go to Jesus. As great as a kid you are, we need to go to Jesus. As great as a brother you are, you can't be for me what Jesus is. We get together as the body of Christ to go to Jesus. And so I love this picture of Paul and all these companions and all these relationships and the beauty of this story, which I've never seen this particular facet. When he saw their faith, the text says, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. An insane, unbelievable moment in the scripture. And so the question about all of this then is is how does this flesh itself out in relationships with one another, in relationships with the Lord. Let me show you. Next slide. In Christ, there is always someone. Can I share something? Can I share something with you guys? Can I listen? It's unbelievable to me that the someone that is Christ, we see often as less significant than a person. Isn't it crazy? We'll say in meetings, no one understands. And we're believers. No one understands. No one gets it. No one loves me. When clearly Christ does, and we've lowered Jesus underneath people. He's not tangible. I can't see him. He, he's not talking to me. He's not eating chips at El Magwe with me. Like, we've lessened him below people. And so because of that, we then believe that even Christ doesn't care. Even Christ doesn't love. Even Christ isn't pursuing. Even Christ isn't interested. And now we're at the root of our issue, aren't we? We have the audacity to believe that even though we're in Christ, there's nobody. So can I show you one last text? Can I show you this? Okay, you have no choice. Check this out, okay? It's at the end of uh, Paul's uh, letter to, Second Tim- to Timothy Many believe this is, these are like his last words, okay? Many believe he dies right after this. At my first defense, verse 16, he says, no one came to stand by me, all deserted me. And in grace, look what he says, may it not be charged against them. He's talking about a defense in the gospel. He says, at first it seems that no one, no one was with me. It seems like everyone deserted me. Can I show you what Paul says next? Look at this, next Slide, verse 17. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from Christ from the lion's mouth. The Lord will, look at this, rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. That's why he said to live as Christ, to die as gain. He will rescue me. It'll be on this earth or it'll be with him in heaven. Either way, to him, he says, be the glory forever and ever. I felt like everyone deserted me, but then the Lord strengthened me. But then I knew that in Christ there's always someone, and that someone is way more significant than any human or even Christian or body of Christ collectively could ever touch. In Christ, it's all I need. That's why at the end of Matthew's gospel, Jesus says this. You never see any of the apostles. You never see any of the apostles in Acts or in any Paul's letters asking where Jesus is. As much as they struggled with it, as much as they battled it in their heart when he was there, Peter's like, don't go. That's when Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. As much as they struggled with him leaving internally, they never ask again once they see the resurrected Christ. Why? Because they know in the spirit Christ was with them. You don't say, see Paul saying, no, where's Jesus at? No, he knows he is with him. He knows he's not alone. He knows that he will never live one more day having to live or believe no one. And, um, and that's how some of you feel tonight. Uh, some of you feel right now, in this very second, that no one at all is interested Some of you are having thoughts of suicide, of worth, and you're believing that no one cares. Some of you just had a a friendship or relationship completely break down, and you're believing right now. No one understands. Listen, what if we in Christ... What if we, as the church, what if we, as people who have been deeply impacted by the gospel, what if we believed that there was always someone? And what if we believed that that someone was way more significant than any person? What if we believed that we were never alone? Think about it. What if the lonely thoughts didn't creep in our minds? What if the devastating realities that happened in those lonely moments never crept into our hearts? What if that was our reality? Let me tell you what would happen. Freedom. The the loss of self-loathing. The arrogance of just looking inside would be gone. We would be free to look at others and to serve others and to love Christ fully. That's our opportunity. We get the one thing that anyone outside of Christ longs for. They're lonely and they want connection and you and I have it in Christ. So if you've walked in this room and you've never experienced communion with God through Christ, let me tell you, you don't have to wait another second. You don't have to wait one more minute. The scripture says anyone who confesses the Lord Jesus will be saved. Confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that He's not just a teacher, but that He's Savior, that He's Lord and He's King. Confess that, believe that, and receive grace and unity and community tonight. And for the rest of us in Jesus, we have a chance tonight to come to the table, to share in this meal That is a representation of our communion with Christ. And I pray that as you make this walk tonight and you tear off a piece of that bread and you dip it in the cup, I pray that the whole way here, you're crying out, God, thank you that I'll never be alone. Thank you I'll never be on an island. Thank you, God, that I'll never be isolated. And I would ask that you would pray that you'll believe it. Let's stand and when God leads, respond in this meal.